This is a presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu. First of all, um, mainly what I'm here to talk about is Colonel Strong um, and the value of primary source information in the study of history. That's so my focus will mainly be on him and his letters. To start, I would need to explain how I came about these letters. In addition to teaching history, I also buy, sell, trade, and appraise Civil War items and have for many years. And that means I'm constantly on the lookout for Civil War items. And I came by these letters eh, through serendipity, really. Um, I was on an online auction site out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and they were advertising um, historic ephemera without really explaining what that meant. Um, and as part of the historic ephemera, they showed you uh, pictures of like three documents. Um, one was a letter dated Chattanooga, Tennessee, November 1863. One was a certificate of passing the bar in the state of Ohio in 1867. And then one was just a picture of a cover. Um, a letter, you know, the cover of a letter. And it was addressed to Republic Ohio. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, Republic Ohio is a little teeny tiny town near Tiffin, Ohio, right? Um, Republic was like a lot of communities. It always thought it would grow massively once the railroad came in, but the railroad never came in. It's still there, but it's a population of a couple hundred people. Um, I bought the ephemera, taking a chance, really. Um, figured, you know, based on the name, I looked him up. I recognized that he was a lieutenant colonel in the 49th Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Uh, he also was a judge um, and a congressman. Um, he served two terms as a Republican from 1893 to 1897 uh, for the 8th District of Ohio, and uh, I bought him. And then I waited for the UPS truck. And when the UPS truck arrived, I got a great surprise because it was all the letters that he wrote to his future wife uh, while he served in the Civil War along with assorted other items, right? So when I first got the UPS package, I started reading the letters and I could not stop. Um, I have been a scholar of the Civil War all my life. Uh, grew up in Williams County, Ohio. Uh, we were one of those families where uh, we had 250 acres and then the next farm down was my maternal grandparents with 200 acres and then across the road was my aunt and uncle, uh, meaning I knew my maternal grandmother very well. Um, she was born in 1889, died in 1981. Um, I always mowed her lawn, I filled her wood box, she cooked on a cast iron wood stove till the end of her life. 
right? And uh, she loved to talk to me about history, and I loved to listen. And when I was about 13, she took me up into the attic, opened the steamer trunk, and gave me the few items that belonged to her grandfather who died in the Civil War. Um, he was in the 68th Ohio Volunteer Infantry. So I have been a longtime scholar of the Civil War, and I have read literally thousands of letters um, written by people who served in the Civil War. And this collection was some of the best I ever read. My original intention was to flip them, right? Make some money. Um, once I read them, I couldn't do that. Um, they were too historically valuable to just be a profit. So consequently, um, they're being published as a book this year by uh, Faded Banner Publications. We'll publish this, the, uh, the collection this year as an extraordinary example of primary source information connected to a number of events of the Civil War. Um, what primary source information like this does for us is it gets us in the mind of somebody who died, in this case, in 1903. And he tells you a lot in his letters about what he was thinking, what he was feeling, um, his opinion on national events that were taking place. And these letters, these 42 letters, are a treasure trove of all manner of primary source information. Today, I'm not going to even attempt to go through 42. That would take far longer than we would ever have the capability of doing in this venue. Um, I am going to give you a sample. I'm going to highlight a few of these letters and kind of explain to you why I picked these particular ones. All right. Now, I noticed that it was advertised as a half an hour. I can't do anything in a half an hour. Um, <laughs> anything connected to history, I can't do in a half an hour. Um, when I did the Sojourner Truth presentation, it went to an hour and a half. I'm hoping not to do that today. I'm going to try to get in in under an hour. So I understand if at that point people feel the need to leave, you will not offend me. Um, history is such a broad subject, it is extraordinarily difficult to be constrained to a small amount of time, like a half an hour. So, to start, the title of the book will be A Question of Right and Duty, being the Civil War Letters of Lieutenant Colonel Luther Strong. He refers to himself as Lute when he signs his letters, Lute being short for Luther. His uh, future wife that who he was writing to is Mary Milliman of Republic, Ohio. Um, he calls her Molly. Um, her mother was also Mary. Uh, I assume Molly being an affectionate nickname. Um, I will highlight the letter where the title comes from. There he is. He's significant enough in history. He has his own Wikipedia page. <laughs> um, this is a picture of him as a major in the Union Army. Uh, to explain, he started out as a captain. Um, Civil War regiments were 10 companies of 100 men each, 1,000 men. 
Um, and they initially in the Civil War elected officers. If you were uh, prominently involved in raising a company, you became an officer in that company. He was a schoolmaster in Tiffin, pre-Civil War, um, and had a substantial hand in raising Company G of the 49th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, um, which meant that he became captain of that company. So he starts out the war as a captain. Throughout the process of the war, he is promoted to major in October 1863, and then he is promoted to lieutenant colonel and commander of the regiment um, as the regiment is re-enlisting. Regiments normally enlisted for three years, but if they re-enlisted and enough of a percentage re-enlisted, they could maintain their regimental designation, keep their flag, etc. So you had the option of going home after three years, or you could re-enlist. He re-enlisted. When he re-enlisted, he became the commander of the regiment. There's the battles that the 49th Ohio participated in. If you are a Civil War aficionado, the 49th Ohio was, first of all, in the Army of Ohio, McCook's division. Then they were in the 20th Corps. And then they ended up the war in the Fourth Corps. That would be essentially the U.S. flag of the 49th Ohio Volunteer Infantry. Every Civil War regiment carried both a national color and a regimental color. Now, for the state of Ohio, at the end of the Civil War, the colors were returned to the state meaning that they are still in existence at the State House in Columbus. Um, some of them are not in very good shape. There's been efforts to fundraise to preserve the colors, um, but they do still exist. This is the first letter I'm going to highlight. Um, this is actually the first letter in the collection. This letter was dated originally 9-24-1861. The regiment was raised in the fall of 1861. This is the excerpt of the letter. It's much longer. Um, he was, as I said, a schoolmaster, meaning he loved to write. Um, like a lot of educated people of the 19th century, he is heavily influenced by Victorian literature, meaning never use two words when 20 is better. Right? Very verbose, very descriptive. As the guy who transcribed these letters, he did not care about punctuation at all. And virtually no punctuation. So, after passing through some trials and tribulations and after receiving some of the luxuries of the campaign, I find myself stretched on my blanket in the rear of my company lines with my sword and my pistol before me and my lieutenants and others about me. I have managed to get a piece of paper and am going to write you a letter. Molly, we are now on the sacred soil of Kentucky. We left Camp Denison, Ohio on Friday the 20th by rail and arrived in Cincinnati about dark. Took passage on the steamers Champion and Dunruth for Louisville. Oh, Molly, if I ever enjoyed a ride, it was that trip down the Ohio. I was perfectly, it was perfectly delightful. You know, I have never traveled much and am not much a judge of scenery 
but these hills and ravines suit me exactly, but I must be brief. We arrived at Louisville about 12 o'clock. As we drew near the landing with drums beating and colors flying, and the deck covered with a hedge of bristling bayonets, the 49th must have presented a magnificent appearance. Our reception surpassed in grandeur all that I have ever thought of. Hundreds of loyal hearts, yes, thousands, were there to greet us. Um, primary source information here. Um, number one, he's new. And God does it show. Right? He's green. He's like every new second lieutenant who just put on the bars. And I say that as having been a second lieutenant who just put on the bars. He's very happy and proud of himself. He's talking about the trappings of the military being new. My sword and my pistol around me. As somebody, I was an infantry officer, I carried a 45 and a M16. It's new, it's a novelty wears out really fast. It becomes a burden. So it's obvious that he's brand new. Point two here, people didn't travel then. It took a lot of money and a lot of time to travel. People rarely traveled. So this is obviously the first time he's ever traveled much. Um, most people in the mid-19th century were lucky. If, if you were from Steuben County, Indiana, you might have got to Fort Wayne once a year. Um, other than that, you just did not travel much because of the problems with traveling. Part three here is he's in love with the pageantry. He's been sold on the romance of war. And the novelty of that is still very apparent here with the way he is describing this. There is actually a picture of the letter itself. Uh, just to kind of give you an illustration of what these letters look like. This one is on patriotic stationery and in pencil. Fortunately, most of these are not in pencil because pencil is incredibly hard to transcribe. It took me probably four hours of work to transcribe this particular letter because I had to do it literally one word at a time and try to figure it out. So that's the, uh, the first letter. Second letter I chose to highlight is October 14th, 1861, right? I was interrupted yesterday by dress parade and since I've received two letters from home. One was from mother bringing me the sad and unwelcome intelligence that Wesley was dead. It seems impossible that he is so young, so gay, so full of life, would be the first to fall and that by sickness and not strife. Molly, since I received the, this news, it has been the only time I have felt sad since I have been in the service. Interesting since I have left home. I had hoped that we might meet again, but painful as was the news to me, I to you, his sister and mother and brother at home is much more distressing. Oh, would I that I could say something to soothe and console you, but the loss is irreparable. There is one cons uh, consolation though. He does not fill a coward's grave. One of the first to step forward at his country's call it is ever a proud, though painful thing to know that he died a sacrifice for his country. A more noble death is not for us to die. Molly, I have not time to write more. More anon, adieu. Um, 
That's um, his future wife's brother. Future wife's brother was in the 25th Ohio. He died of disease at Cheap Mountain, then West Virginia. Um, disease is the real killer of the Civil War. Um, disease killed three for every that died on the battlefield. Um, Lister didn't do its work until 1870. They didn't know about bacteria. They were still operating on the theory of the four humors of the body. They didn't know how to treat um, infection. In fact, infection was not even a word. It was inflammation, not infection. And the, the camp sanitation was horrible. They later uh, created an organization called the uh, Sanitary Commission to try to clean up the camps, to cut down on the death. Um, but this is very typical of the way Civil War soldiers died. They died of disease. And they died of disease uh, due to bad sanitation. December 17, 1861. It has been a long time since I have written to you. And in the meantime, I have received several letters from you. I will now try to answer, but I don't know whether you will be able to read it or not. As you will see from this, that my nerves are not very steady. This is the second letter that I have written since I have taken sick. Ah, right? Disease comes rolling back again, in this case to him, and it almost kills him. He, he's lucky to survive the disease. I was pretty sick, but was fortunate enough to find a place in a private family, one of those true whole-souled Kentuckians, of which there are not a great many. My apologies to anybody if you're from Kentucky. All right. These people did everything for me that, that could have been done if I had been at home. In fact, it began to seem like home. I was there nearly five weeks. Finally, our brigade moved on to this camp, a distance of about 22 miles, and left me behind. I remained behind one week. I left my Kentucky home and journeyed to this camp by railroad, however, for I was not able to walk more than a few rods at a time. A rod, folks? Five and a half yards. So he's saying that I could not walk more than about 20 feet without stopping. That indicates he had severe illness. Um, probably would have been classified as camp fever, which was a catch-all term. Um, this letter is Civil War soldier as tourist. Um, Shelby Foote, the great Civil War historian, once said that what happened for most people that served in the Civil War was it gave them a practical idea of what America was. Before the war, they had an abstract idea of what America was. But after the war, they knew what America was because they had marched its roads. They had climbed its mountains. They had fought on its fields. Um, and to somebody from Ohio, especially the rather boring flat country around Tiffin, right, the caves of Kentucky would have been of great interest. So he visits one of those caves. We are in the interesting part of the state in the region of caves. The Great Mammoth Cave and several others noted caves are in the vicinity. Yesterday, I visited the celebrated Diamond Cave, where I beheld one of the most beautiful and wonderful sights of nature. Right? 
Um, the entrance of the, to the cave has been obstructed for the purposes of keeping soldiers out. At least they might rob it of its many beauties, but the boys are not long in. Discovering it and opening a hole sufficient to admit a person, crowding myself through this narrow pass by slipping down a long and muddy hole, I found myself at the top of the ladder leading down. Down, it seemed, to the by the glimmering light of our candles to the lower regions. Passing down these steps some 25 to 30 feet, we came to a plank walk with railings on either side to keep the visitor from stepping off and passing suddenly into the unexplained territory. This we followed until we came to the terminus of the cave, but now by any means was it level for at every few yards we came to steps leading still lower down in one part of the cave. There is quite a large room or hall prepared at one time to be used as a ballroom. Um, another thing about this letter that kind of um, amused me a bit, um, they talk about how no union person would ever desecrate the, the caves. And then at the end of the letter he says, I've included a piece of a stalactite um, as a souvenir for you. This is uh, Shiloh, April 6th and 7th, 1862. Um, this was their first major battle. Um, they got there just in time for the second day of Shiloh. They were rushed in by force march and by steamboat. And they fought on the second day. They had about four killed and about 26 wounded the second day at Shiloh. And he writes this letter, April 10th, 1862. This is the greatest battle ever fought on this continent, which it was at that time. Uh, Shiloh killed more people than all previous American wars combined. At, at that stage of, the, of things. The loss of life is perfectly fearful. It was over, I was over a part of it, and the ground was covered with dead. We lay here Monday and Tuesday night, surrounded by dead men and horses in a drenching rain with us and them. I have seen 7,000 dead men, yes and more, upon the field. To see a man with his brains scattered about, and he struggling, affects me little more than if he were a chicken. Our loss is severe, but theirs is terrible. They fought desperately, but we whipped them. I have seen enough. I am willing to have them give up now. I am not anxious to see another battlefield like this. Shiloh was the uh, baptism of fire for a lot of Western troops. Um, a, later in the war, it was common for soldiers to say after a battle, I was al scared almost as much here as I was at Shiloh. Um, Shiloh, by the way, is a Hebrew word meaning place of peace. There's that letter, also in pencil. This has a text and a subtext. I'm going to ask for a little help on this one to see if anybody can spot this subtext. Because it is classic Victorianism. Right? Classic Victorianism. December 20th, 1862, Bowling Green, Kentucky. It is Saturday night, and how much I wish that on the morrow I could be with Molly. This is a rough world of ours. I fear as well for you as for me. I am not in the habit of desponding, but it sometimes requires an exercise of considerable extra imagination to see a bright future through the gloom of the present. 
These cold nights with a very indifferent place to sleep are evils calculated to cause the mind to stroll into the future and thine to search it perchance some brighter days, some golden hours of sunshine is not in store for us. We strive, yes, but mainly strive to look beyond the smoke of the present terrible conflict for better times. And of imagination, fix a point and say, here shall end the energy by fond hope lured on point to peace. It's natural association with homes, friends, and joyful times with those we love. It is so distant and its view so indistinct that uncertainty and doubt step in to mar the vision and soul dreamy musing thoughts of it all. Its brilliance of the splendid castle vanishes and the stern facts stare us in the face. Yet I have hoped that this cannot always last. May we be of good cheer, Molly. The overt is he's depressed. Uh, the term in the Civil War was melancholy and they considered melancholy to be a major threat. Um, they believed that melancholy could cause soldiers to die. They believed it would cause desertion. They attempted to ban certain songs from being sung because it was believed that they would promote melancholy. That's the overt. Anybody see the subtext? The love letter. How is it a love letter? He says he misses Molly, and then later in the letter he says that he wishes for a future time when he can be with those he loves. That's a love letter. Um, why is it that way? Because of Victorian mores connected to the genders, uh, the sexes. Uh, at this point in time, uh, the Victorian era is 1837 to 1901. Uh, during that time period, you cannot say that a lady had a leg. You could only say that a lady had a limb. Um, I sometimes tell my students that I have sold Civil War pornography. Be shocked. Um, my favorite piece ever was one that showed a young lady wearing a hoop skirt with a uh, fishing line and she had caught the hook on the hem of her dress and showed her lower leg, right? The sight of an ankle was considered to be pornographic. Um, once you were married, you could say what you wanted, right? Many of you might be uh, familiar with the Sullivan Ballou letter um, that was featured in uh, Ken Burns' uh, Civil War. He goes into elaborate detail about how he knows he's going to die at the Battle of Bull Run, and when he does, he will come back as a spirit to flit around her. You know, and when she feels wind, it will be his breath on her cheek. Fine once you're married. Um, I sometimes wonder why any of us got here. Uh, this is the way our ancestors had to pursue romantic affectation. Very obscure very between the lines. Uh, this is a beautiful letter. I believe this shows us the uh, full soul of Colonel Strong. Um, what he's doing here is, is he's trying to reconcile the beauty of nature with the uh, inhumanity of the war. Right. And he goes, nature is wearing her, well, first of all, let me uh, get the date of this. Uh, May 2nd, 1863. So spring is in full bloom. 
They're in Tennessee. They're at Stones River, right? And he's commenting on nature. Nature is wearing her most beautiful garment. The air comes balmy and almost a bit too warm, but scented with the rich odor of many a southern flower. And the woods is musical with the warbling notes of its feathered songsters. They are happy and remind us of happier days and cause us to look forward with keenest hope for other days to come in which fancy pictures joy more perfect made by contrast with other days that then are past. If this shall be, then cruel war, you prove a friend to me, for surely I can then appreciate and enjoying in the blessings that otherwise would be thrown away was scarce the knowledge that they were curses, such as life. If all were pleasure, then pleasure would not be worth the living. Um, Thomas Paine, that which we gain too easily, we esteem too lightly. Right? That's what he's saying. All, all is quiet on Stone's River. No sound heard to tell the tale that two mighty hosts lie near each other there quiet like smothered rage, ready each to spring on each other and fight to annihilation. Such is the case in any moment may stand us out and we have orders to be ready at a moment's notice. What a day will bring is very uncertain for if these two armies meet and meet, I think they must, thousands on two thousands added shall bid adieu to this life joys and pain while others' hearts shall bleed far away the fields of strife. Right? He's juxtapositioning the beauties of nature with man's inhumanity to man. Um, also, I showed you this picture here of the letter. See these markings right here? Those circles? Later in the letter, he says he will send her a flower. That's the markings of the flower. First draft in American history, 1863. Um, it was resisted because the government said that you could get out of the draft by either playing, paying the government $300 or you could hire a substitute. Um, it fostered rich man's war, poor man's fight. Um, many draft riots across America, the most famous being in New York City, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd and the New York City draft riots. There were draft riots in Ohio, um, especially in urban areas in resistance to the draft. He's referring to that in this letter. The authorities seem to be afraid to enforce the draft in Ohio. I would be very sorry to an outbreak there, but I confess it would do me more good to punish some of these traitors than to kill the chief of the Southern rebels. They are so contemptible, it seems impossible that men, rational beings, shall be so blind to their own interests, and so little patriotism or could be so devilish as to desire the destruction of our government, and that only, too, because their own party is not in power. May life's unblessed cup for him be drugged with treacheries to the brim. Can't find that quote. Um, I've looked for it, I can't find it. This is... Missionary Ridge. Um, if you're not familiar with Missionary Ridge, this is northern uh, Georgia, right on the Tennessee line. The Confederates held the top of a mountain. It was over a one-mile climb straight to the top. 
The Union soldiers took it without orders. Um, this is classic primary source information, classic primary source. On the afternoon of the 23rd, we marched out and formed our lines in full view of the enemy, charged him before us, taking possession of Orchard Knob, a prominence between our camp and the steep-sided Missionary Ridge. This position we held, and on the 24th, some of our forces under Hooker stormed out and carried Lookout Mountain on our right, and in the meantime, Sherman effected a crossing up the river. We charged across the valley one and one-fourth mile to the foot of the hill under a terrible fire from infantry and artillery, drawing the enemy from his works, taking many prisoners. But now we are at the foot of the hill. The enemy is on top, pouring a perfect storm of death into our ranks. We are so exhausted we cannot climb that steep hill, nearly a mile high, without resting. We struggle and drop in the midst of death to rest. Zip, zip, crack, come the miney and the shell. Miney is the projectile of the rifle musket of the Civil War, named for uh, Captain Claude Miney, who invented it in 1848. Um, we must not stay here. With a yell of desperation, we rush on, up, 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 determined to die if die we must near the top of the hill. Our ranks are thinned. Oh, heaven, must we fail? Shall all our struggling be in vain? But look, we have gained the top. Our men leap the works. They seize the enemy's guns and turn them. Yell after yell renders the air. The victory is ours. Um, classic primary source. Uh, this whole letter is fantastic. He talks about several men he lost. Uh, one he talks about jumps on top of the, the works and gets uh, cut in half by a cannonball um, in this letter. This one I included because nobody ever talked about this. This is, social, this is a social historian's dream. Because what do soldiers write about? Do they ever write about, this is how I live? This is where I sleep? They don't write that. That's too mundane. You would never write that. Uh, Strong does. <laughs> Strong gives a full letter about what his life is like on campaign. Um, at this point in the war... This is late in 1863. They were near Knoxville. Um, and he was living in a wall tent. Uh, my house is a nice new wall tent. And it's pit pitched in a cluster of small pines from which half concealed floats the old starry banner. Within one corner upon stakes driven for the purpose hangs my saddle, a piece of strap-mounted furniture, the cost of which was $45. And in another corner stands a rude table on which I am writing, which consists of four stakes driven in the ground on which are laid two small boards, sides of cracker boxes. He's talking about hardtack, uh, main item of diet of the soldiers, the salt and water biscuit. And these are covered with a Cincinnati Daily Commercial newspaper. On this table is a portfolio, two daily papers, a magazine being the ladies' repository, Writing material and company, mean, which means a pipe. On one side stands my spring bread constructed in this manner. Four stakes are driven into the ground on which are laid two cross pieces and on these small poles about six and a half feet long. These are covered with boughs in my blanket. He's talking about pine, pine boughs um, in my blanket. My great coat forms the pillow. In the rear end of my tent 
and hanging on this upright are my sword, dress coat, whisk broom, and an article which I prized very much as it was given to me by her. Um, there is some marvelous interplay in other letters. Um, two comes to mind, one of which, of course, I can only read his side of it. I can't read her side because, you know, I have his letters to her. Um, somebody, when they came home, accused him of paying uh, attention to southern ladies. And he spends an entire letter defending himself against that accusation. There's also another letter in which a sergeant in his company went back to Tiffin on recruiting duty, and Molly gave him a lock of her hair, which was a romantic gesture. And in the letter, he says he does not like the fact that she allowed the sergeant to cut her hair, and he will make sure to give the sergeant extra duty upon his return. Marvelous interplay. Um, that's a flirt in Victorian time period, the fact that he mentioned the article given to him by her. My hand trunk serves me for a seat, spurs and slippers lay at the corner of the bed, towel hangs near the saddle, and now if you will imagine the floor covered with a magnificent green carpet made of pine boughs, you have an idea. Don't you think that's pretty good for a soldier? That's an extraordinarily rare letter. That's probably one of the rarest letters in the collection. Battle letters you find. This you do not. May 30th, 1864, Atlanta campaign, Pickett's Mill. Uh, Pickett's Mill is referred to as the Cold Harbor of the West. Uh, if you're not familiar with Cold Harbor, in Grant's uh, memoirs, he said he only regretted a couple of things in the war. One was Cold Harbor, where he had Union troops attack entrenched Confederate lines. They lost 7,000 men in 10 minutes. Um, it was that bad here. Um, they ordered McCook's division to attack entrenched infantry, cavalry, and artillery. Um, Ambrose Beers calls this the crime of Pickett's Mill. Um, because of the slaughter. Um, excuse me. Get a little drink of coffee. My throat's getting a little dark. We're fighting, still fighting, fighting. On the 27th, our division had the most terrible conflict on record. The 49th lost 202 out of 429. Right? By half the regiment. Um, nearly half of those engaged, and they were nearly all killed or very severely wounded. I do not think you know many of them, hence I will not give a list. One will be published soon. David Cole was severely wounded and in the hands of the enemy. He died a prisoner of war. Um, Wes is severely wounded in the soldier. That's a relative of Molly. Um, I only write now to let you know that I live, have not had time to write a letter. I came to the rear to change some bloody clothes for clean ones and to have a slight wound dressed. I'm going to the front in a few minutes. The fight still goes on by spells. I will write again as soon as I can. He was shot through the shoulder. Um, he's playing down the severity of his wound. Um, he literally came to the rear because his shirt and his coat were soaked with blood. And so he came to the rear long enough to uh, change his clothes. 
here's where the uh, title of the uh, book comes from. And we're getting towards the end of the letters here, folks. Got a couple more to go. My desire to come home more than counterbalances my ambition to become colonel. But here comes up to a question of right and duty. Would it be right for me to leave those noblemen with whom I have fought for three years without a commander to fall under command of a man whom they despise? What they mean by that is if somebody in the regiment didn't take the command, they would have appointed one. Meaning they would have got somebody they did not know. Right? They preferred they had somebody that they knew. Would it be right to desert my country now in the hour of her utmost need when she is assailed by traitors both in the rear, the front and in the rear? Shall it be recorded that the American Republic failed because her sons were too ignoble to defend her? These are questions constantly in my mind and there is a struggle between my duty to my friends and my duty to my country. It is known that I have no family and will be decided by the men here and by the people elsewhere that I have no good cause for quitting and they will not consider what I have done. Past service would be ignored and no credit given for them. It is my present conviction that if our cause be lost, which can only occur through the cowardice, treachery and ignominy of the North and we were subjected to the rule of the Southern aristocracy mingled with the Northern cowards, I would not remain quietly in the country, but would struggle until strife put an end to my existence or take mine and seek a home in a foreign land. But it shall not be. Our prospects are bright. As far as the struggle in the field is concerned, I still have faith in the integrity of the people of the North. Internal struggle. A choice between right and duty. Uh, two letters to go. Um, to explain the, the uh, scenario here, we're talking uh, late November 1864. Um, Atlanta had fallen after the Battle of Jonesboro. Uh, Sherman takes the bulk of the Union Army towards Savannah. The March to the Sea. Uh, Confederate uh, General uh, Johnston was replaced by John Bell Hood. Uh, John Bell Hood, by this point in the war, has to be strapped to the saddle because he only has one arm and one leg left. Um, he decides that he can end the war by invading the North. So he tries to threaten Nashville. And the Fourth Corps are kind of caught in the middle. And uh, the Fourth Corps find themselves on a road race uh, between um, where they were and the Union stronghold of Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, Franklin, Tennessee is on the Harpeth River. Um, the 23rd Corps under Schofield was there and uh, was well entrenched. Many of the men of the 23rd Corps had purchased Henry repeating rifles, um, meaning it was a very ardent defense. Um, but they're in a road race. Um, and they're outnumbered by Hood's Confederate Army. If Hood's Confederate Army can get in front of them, they could be cut off and destroyed. In order to keep on the right side of the enemy, we find it necessary of the 20th November to pull out from our chimneys and march rapidly for Columbia, where we arrived on the 24th just in time to be there before Hood. After skirmishing here until the 29th, we again found it necessary to make some rapid marching to keep on the north side and prevent being cut off from Nashville and everything else. And here we had one of the narrowest escapes of the war. 
The enemy having crossed Duck River took a road running nearly parallel with the run on which we were to retreat, and it was the nearest blunder of his that we were not cut off, as he was ahead of us and might have crossed our tracks at any time, and he outnumbered us two to one. But providently, providentially, instead of doing so, he went into camp within a half a mile of our road and lay there until morning. Well, during the night, our whole army, with a train 40 miles long, slipped by him within musket range of his camp, 300 yards. Within 300 yards of his camp, they slipped by in the night. So close that we could see the Rebs standing around their fires so plainly, and so close that nearly everyone told differently, supposed them to be our own men in camp. Why they permitted us to pass by unmolested is more than I can tell. For they certainly must have known, for they could not help but hearing our teamsters yelling and our wagons and artillery rattling. Yet we slipped by them and moved on to Franklin, uh, which was a battle November 30th, 1864. Um, probably one of the most famous uh, reminiscences of the Army of Tennessee is uh, Sam Watkins, Company H, the sideshow of the big show. The only thing that he will say about Franklin is the angel of death came to visit us at Franklin on the 30th of November. Um, six Confederate generals were killed at, Frank, at Franklin. Um, if you've never been and you're going through Franklin, I recommend the Carter House. Fantastic sight. Um, one of the only places that I know of where you can still see bullet holes from the Civil War. Um, last letter, uh, December 1864, I write you a few lines which I think will reach you about Christmas Day and tell you of my situation. You have undoubtedly heard of the battle south of Nashville and our victory, how we hurtled the defiant horde back where, wherever he came in company and company. Well, we took front, of course, of all of this until the evening of the 16th when making a charge on Brentwood Hills. I received a musket ball through the thick of my left forearm, crushing the bone. Um, this is from um, hosp Officer's Hospital Ward J, um, where he's being treated for the wound which shattered his, uh, his arm. Um, since I have been confined to my couch most of the time, but my wound seems to be doing well, and I think I will recover soon sufficient to get about, I will probably come home some of these fine days. My regiment suffered heavily, lost 50 or more killed or wounded, being one-third of our fighting force. Uh, two other members of the regiment, which she knew, Molly knew, Vandenberg and Chase are among those fallen. I wish you a Merry Christmas. There's what's left of the uh, flag. Uh, by the way, he was discharged in February of 1865. They were married in March. They were married in March, and they went on. He died in uh, 1903. She died in 1928. Um, there is the monument to the 49th at Shiloh. There's um, Strong's grave, Kenton, Ohio, right, when he was uh, buried in 1903. And as I said, he had spent time as the judge and also a congressman by that point. Um, there's, his, uh, 
Remember how I started this when I said it gave me enough clues to figure out? There's his uh, certificate of passing the bar that the auction house showed. Also in the collection was a campaign ribbon for him. Well, when he, wrote, when he uh, ran for office the first time in 1892, um, he served two terms. It might be interesting to folks why he only served two. Uh, the Republican Party wouldn't support you for more than two at that point in time. They thought two was enough for anybody. So he, he did two. Ah, story within a story. This is a, uh, there's two of these in the collection. This is an uh, invitation to the White House to uh, um, Congressman Strong and his lady. And this would have been received by a Molly with a lot of uh, joy, I would think, because there's a sub-story in this. Um, Cleveland, in history, is known as the president, the only, the only president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Um, he was married in the, the White House. Uh, and uh, he was 47, his bride was 21. Um, little bit more to that. Um, his bride, Frances Folsom, was um, the Jackie Kennedy of the late 19th century. Um, she was a, a knowledge beauty and debutante who had been engaged three times when she was in college. Um, he was her legal ward. Um, her father had been killed in a train crash and Cleveland took over responsibility for her. And in all of their letters that they wrote back and forth, she refers to him as Uncle Cleve. And then they were married um, in the White House. Um, so Molly would have been thrilled to meet Francis, who was quite the uh, um, famous person of the late 19th century. And I end on this one, because I think you should always end on a positive. Also in the collection is, and by the way, this is the collection um, to illustrate. This is the collection. The 42 letters and all of the other documentation is in that folder right there. Um, Joseph Wheeler. Anybody happen to know who Joseph Wheeler was? He was a Confederate general. Uh, by 18... 93, he was a congressman from Alabama. Um, he saved Joseph Wheeler's calling card. Um, they would have fought against each other at Shiloh, at Lookout Mountain, at Chickamauga, right? So by 1897, this represents that the nation had done the reunification. So we're going to end on the hope of peace and reunification. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this presentation of the Trine Broadcasting Network, part of the Center for Sports Studies at Trine University. Learn more at trine.edu.